Um, we've been going through the letter to uh, the people of God through First John, and we've been taking a number of weeks to just unpack that and think very thoughtfully about what it means to be God's children in a world that has no use for God, really indifferent to the ways of God. So how do we then situate ourselves in this world, be people of love, mercy, and grace to our neighbors? And also, it's important in that letter that uh, the Apostle wants the people of God to be people of joy in a world that is full of opportunity to constantly drain our joy. First John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, the first 10 verses. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. For he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this is evident. By this, uh, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. Just a couple weeks ago, Isaiah had some friends from college over. We had dinner together. First time we met his friends from college. They were laughing their heads off, and they said to Isaiah after they left, they said, oh man, having dinner with your family, it was like into the Isaiah verse. You're all the same. Now, that's not... That's not totally true. However, being in our house and around the, the, the table, his friends were just blown away by the similarities. They said, Isaiah's making jokes, and dad is making jokes, and mom is making jokes, and little brother's making jokes, the sister's making jokes, everybody's laughing. The Isaiah verse, you're all the same. What, what they were laughing about was the, 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 the fact that we were all of the same family was, it was, utter, it was obvious. That's the heart and guts behind John's purpose in writing this portion of the letter. He's like, if you belong to God, and if this thing he called grace has saved you by grace, the similarities are going to be obvious. Undeniable and obvious. And earlier in the letter, he already makes it very clear that all Christians sin, so that's not actually what this is about. I'll break it out in a minute. Because all Christians stumble and sin. You know this. But he's saying that there is an undeniable family resemblance that is birthed of those who are the children of God. And so I want to focus this morning on one phrase, practicing righteousness. A lot can be gleaned from this, but I just want to zero in on that. We are to be people who are practicing righteousness. What does that even mean? We're going to consider a few questions. 
What does it look like to practice righteousness? Secondly, what gets in the way of practicing righteousness? And then lastly, why should we practice righteousness? We've got to get the motivation right. We don't want to end up where the Pharisees ended up. So let's look at the first uh, question. What does it look like to practice righteousness? John is very clear in this passage that there's, there's this undeniable resemblance. We resemble the objects of our affection. You know, there's a difference between casually enjoying sport and watching game film. Athletes watch game film. Spectators enjoy the game. You and I enjoy the game because we're just sort of enjoying the spectacle, but we walk away and there's really, we're not thinking very deeply about how any of that is really going to be applied in our life. But the athlete watches game film. They stop, they back it up, they stop, they back it up, they stop, they back it up. Because their intention is to, if they're a young athlete uh, and they're watching a professional athlete and they're watching game film, their intention is to learn and to emulate and to integrate and to adapt into their own game. In, in other words, they're, put, they have, they have, they're fully intending on putting on the Jesus jersey. There's a total difference between a, a young kid watching hockey and going, that was cool, and another kid watching game film going, how did he do that? 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 What did he do with the stick? Where were his feet? Where were his hands? Where were his wrists? Where were his eyes? How did he do that? John is saying the difference is not in, at, at bottom, and I'll get to this later, at bottom, it's not in the activity, it's in the allegiance if the allegiance is wrong, you can try and get the right activity and you end up like a, at the Pharisees, which Jesus never had anything good to say about. Because the motivation was wrong and everything was somehow skewed. And they never really resembled the heart of the Father. They had 613 check marks as they were careful about the laws of the Torah, but Jesus never commended them for it. So something went wrong. So what does it look like? It looks like this true desire and love to emulate Jesus, to, to, to model our game after him. I mean, because we... At the end of the day, are, are mesmerized him. We, find, we don't just find him useful. We find him beautiful. And people of the gospel, the children of God, find, find God beautiful. Find the gospel beautiful. Find Jesus beautiful. Therefore, the love and the wisdom, the patience and the grace, the justice, the willingness to speak truth to power in love, because he was willing to lay his life down and die for those, the people he was speaking truth to, but... All of these things, there's a desire for us to integrate these things into our life because of sheer love and joy for Jesus. It looks like to practice this righteousness. In other words, when you look at Jesus' life, you find these rhythms of him with the Father in prayer and the meditation of the Scripture. We want to build those rhythms into our life, uh, the motivation of which is not some sort of this check, you know, box-checking sort of duty in the home, but rather it's like, um, how do I emulate that love and wisdom and grace at work? How do I emulate that kind of boldness and humility on campus? How do I go into the city and, and really care deeply and feel deeply emotional about the injustices that are going on without being swept up into the cultural narrative? How do I be a person of wisdom? How do I do all that? It's by having the same liturgy in our life, because everybody, I talked about this two weeks ago when I was preaching, we all have liturgies in our lives, right? Liturgy is simply the ordering of things. For those of you who are new to church or you're uh, exploring Christian faith this morning, you're not religious, um, you, I know it's a religious term for me to say you have a liturgy, but you have an order to your life. You wake up and center your life around things. You say, this is why I get up in the morning. These are my core values. This is what's most important. And because these values are most important to me, I have 
I have carved space into my life for them. That's why I eat a certain way or I exercise or I do self-care or I read these books or I go to these conferences to further my career, my education. Like you, you have a liturgy, a form. So, so as people of faith, we understand that when you orient your life around liturgy and you orient your life around rhythm, that is what we call worship because you are, worship is centering And so what does it look like to practice this righteousness? It's that as the people of God, not because for for guilt or earning or any of these sorts of ideas that we have to somehow appease God through our actions, that's that's where the religious kids are playing. We understand that isn't true. Because we are saved by grace, we're very interested in building liturgies into our lives. For those of you who are um, uh, married or you have children, married with children, um, Form, have, having formative liturgies in, for the life of your, for your children as well. And to not have them is also a liturgy. To say, well, it's a sunny day out tonight, today, so maybe we don't go to church. Or all, my parents read the Bible a lot when I was a kid, and that, you know, I always rolled my eyes, so we're going to read the Bible once every six months at our house because I just want to balance that. Like, that is also formative. So to practice the righteousness is a, is a rhythm but the rhythm is driven by joy. It's driven by like a genuine excitement about the divine narrative of who Christ is and what he's done. We're sort of truly blown away by that joy. That's the theme of this whole letter. He says, I'm writing this, chapter one, I'm writing this so you'll be people of joy. So it's impossible to be, a, a, to be people of joy without the rhythm of practicing the, 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 the righteousness uh, or to put that term righteous, it sounds religious. Uh, to put the term on the ground, the love, the wisdom, the care, the life that is curved out, carving the space in for others, uh, walking that out amongst those who are sitting around you, this faith community here. Whether it is through the facilitation of community through the church, the, the community groups and programs and things that we, we offer here to facilitate that, or whether it's community that you build organically outside of anything that the church does, these sort of formative rhythms, practicing the righteousness, um, you know, working out what we claim, that we believe, but it all being driven from joy. Our hearts are like compasses, philosopher James Smith He's the professor of philosophy at Calvin College. He, he wrote a book called You Are What You Love. He talks about the heart is like magnetic north. The heart is always being drawn to the object of its affection, magnetic north. And so what, what John is getting at in this letter is, ah, we're drawn to the love, the beauty of Jesus, of what we have seen. It's formative. And so this is, speaks to that sort of formative power. So what this looks like to practice righteousness isn't merely sort of, Taking away from this sermon and saying, okay, because we've all done this. Okay, i gotta ramp up my, uh, got to ramp up the spiritual activity in my home. Because in most cases in my life, 47 years of trying and failing at this miserably, it always starts off well-intended and it, and it crashes and burns and sort of indifferent. Why, and as I do self-autopsy on why that has happened in the past, it's because I never genuinely found Jesus beautiful. I never genuinely thought the gospel was that exciting and never genuinely considered what the renewal of all things meant 
those the, the, the large categories of being swept up into the divine narrative of what God is doing never really moved my heart. So it was always sort of truncated down into sort of read and pray a little more. And that never really lasted very long. But when you look at the granite of the gospel against the black backdrop of the failure and the horror that is the world in which we live in, as tyrants in Russia move in, in radical hostility and violence and injustice on the people of Ukraine and the world continues to cycle through the ways that the world has always cycled for thousands of years. When you look at the, 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 the sadness of the world, and we don't just stick our heads to the sand and say, here's a great way for me, for me to feel happy this week. But when we look at the tragedy of the world and we look at the grandness of the gospel and we look at how actually I'm not just like a passive observer here, but I am a minister of hope and of love. And that in the end, as everybody, whether, whether they're Christians, Christian or not, are crying out for justice over there as the, as the war is breaking out, that in the end, justice is coming from a perfect and omnipotent and loving and wise king who will bring a justice so good that no one is getting away with anything since the beginning of time. All of the tyrants that lived and died having built lives of disgusting opulence and wealth and pleasure on the backs of those whom they crushed. All form of oppression and suffering and sorrow throughout all of human history. In the end, nobody's getting away with anything, but perfect justice is coming. And thank God, all of us who've contributed to the injustice in the world, which is everybody starting with me, all of us who have been unloving and have contributed hurt and sorrow and have said words and thought things and done actions that have been hurtful to other people, you and I are both guilty of that. But because of the great grace of God that we're not going to actually come under that judgment and justice, we deserve it, but we're not going to get it. But because of what Jesus Christ has done at the cross, we will get mercy. You see, the cross of Christ, the perfect intersection of justice and mercy, Nobody is getting away with anything. Those of you who have an inclination for justice, that should make you feel good. No one is getting away with anything. They will pay. But thank God, those of us, which is all of us, who deserve that, ju that judgment, united to Christ in his perfect life of love and grace, we will get mercy. And you see, until those large categories help us frame the horrors of the world that we're in, God is not that interesting and you truncate righteousness and practicing righteousness into, I guess I should read more or pray more or whatever, do something more. And it never lasts. So to practice this righteousness is to be blown away by the goodness of Jesus. You know, I'm a big Formula One fan. I'm a new Formula One fan, but I became a big Formula One fan. And so, you know, I have to be uh, faithful to my Italian heritage. So naturally, I joined the Tifosi. And so as you follow Ferrari, they have a phrase if you leave another team and you race for Ferrari, they welcome you in and it's buongiorno, essere Ferrari. And essere means the essence of or the spirit of. So you, you don't just bring your whole way of doing stuff at McLaren into Ferrari. You were at McLaren, but um, ciao, essere Ferrari. Those of you who have built businesses and you give careful attention to the culture of the business, it's the same idea. Hey, welcome to the company. This is how we do things here. Those of you who uh, have children, it's the same with your family. Yes, I know that's what they do at their house, 
but this is our house. This is what the apostle is getting at. See, to practice righteousness is not a... You can't truncate, truncate that down into doing some things and checking some boxes. It's a way. It's being blown away, absolutely blown away by Jesus' way. So let's move on to the second thing. What gets in the way of practicing all this and doing what I'm saying? The obvious answer is sin. I'm not going to take too much time talking about this because earlier in the letter, he already is very clear that all Christians fall into sin. But this whole practicing sinning, he's not talking to the church. He's not talking to Christians because he's making it very, very clear. If you read through his phrasing, you're in the family or you're not. And if you are practicing sinning, he doesn't, that, that phrase doesn't even mean you fall into it like you and I all fall into it. It means that's your esere. That's the way you do things. It's your way of life. You've built it into your life. In the Greek, practicing sinning means to habitually build it in. It means that it is ongoing. In English, we only have three tenses, past, present, future. In Greek, there are seven tenses. And the tense for practicing sinning is like a, is like a, pre, is like a present, future, continual. Like the implication is there's no change here. So every church is like a hospital. We're all a bit of a mess. We all love Jesus. We've all matured in some ways and we're terribly immature in others. You're sitting around people who in some ways have really grown into the ways of Jesus in beautiful and helpful ways. And in other ways, they're like, oh, God, help me. When we were planting Redeemer in 2014, the elders from New City Hamilton, New City Newmarket, and Grace Toronto all said to me, Paul, when you and those families plant this church, you're basically building a hospital. That's what all churches are. We're all being healed, (laughs) and we're all pilgrims on the way. And so you're going to need a lot of doctors and nurses to work the ER, but there's only going to be so many people ready to be doctors and nurses because there's going to be other people in the church who show up and they're like, stick a gospel IV in me, I'm done. And so there's all these different degrees of maturity in every church. He's not talking about maturity and people are practicing sin because they're immature. What he's saying is, you don't find Jesus that beautiful. The preacher can get up. I have been talking about God's scandalous grace for seven years. This is like, I don't know what sermon this is. I've preached 50 sermons a year for seven years. So somebody help me with the math. What is that, 300-something sermons? Okay, so I've been like a broken record up here about how amazing Jesus is. And for some of us, we're like little kids playing peekaboo. And every time you talk about the gospel, the kid is like, do it again, do it again, do it again. It never gets old. And some Christians in the spirit, they're kind of like old farts. And they just, Jesus is kind of like, you know what, the more you talk about, I'm really that interested. I wish you would just get to what I'm supposed to be doing on Monday. Well, friend, that's your problem. That's why you're not growing. Because you don't need a position paper on absolutely everything you should be doing on Monday. The more that we are blown away by the majesty of Jesus, the more that we read through the New Testament and it's like game film for us. And we're like, how do I walk out that kind of wisdom and boldness and grace? And I, I, how do I do that? There's like a childlike humility and joy about it. And that is the esere of practicing righteousness. So let's move on. It's sin, obviously, that gets in the way. Because what it's saying is sin is the animating force here. In the New Testament, Christianity was not called Christianity. Numerous times, starting in Acts chapter 9, 
They just called it the way. People of the way. And that is a beautiful picture of what it means to practice righteousness. It is a way. And so when in Rome, a woman would come into the church and suddenly she's in this this environment where she is treated with equality that she couldn't find anywhere else in the culture. Because in the culture, if the sun went down, she was fair game. That's the ancient world. That's how horrible it was to be a woman. But then when she goes into the church and it's like, actually, we don't sleep with whoever we want here. In fact, we don't sleep with anybody unless we've committed our whole financial life and our emotional life and our physical life and our care. Until we have committed every facet of who we are to a person, then we will give ourselves sexually to a person. That's why when a woman would come into the church and was like, um, I'm sorry, this is a whole other way. Or a poor person or a person of poor social status came into the church and there was a sense of equality when they walked in. It was a way. And so for the Christians, it's like, why are, you, why are your ethics the way they are? Why do you live the way that you do? Or what's the motivating and driving, driving force? A new believer comes into the church and you say, why should I drop that and call that sin? And why should I walk according to this? Notice the apostle doesn't break out a million ways to practice righteousness. Notice he has an expectation that the church is going to go back to the life of Jesus, go back to the Old Testament scriptures, and go, what is this practicing righteousness going to look like, this life of love? So when they're asking that, why should I do this? And why ought to I adopt this? The answer is, this is the way. So, this sin gets in the way because those who are practicing lawlessness, practicing sin, they are saying, this is the way. So as soon as something is incongruent with their worldview, right, sanctity of life, sexual ethics, how to relate to the poor, the reasons why someone is poor, Right? Read ancient literature on poverty. What, what, what did they say? What was Aristotle saying about why people were poor? They were talking about poor people like they were tools and not humans. And they're like, well, here's, here's the reasons why you're poor. This narrow, truncated, sort of arrogant view of why someone could be in generational poverty. And so for the Christians, it's like they would look at all of these ways of relating to the world and say, no, actually, this is not the way. This is the way. And so, the desire to live to the glory of God in this uh, regard. Let's move on to the last thing. And maybe before, I'll, before I get into it, in terms of why we should practice righteousness, there's some strong language here. Ch- children of God, children of the devil. Man, we don't like that. That's like, oof. Some of you visiting church today, maybe this is your first time in church, you look at phrases like that, you're like, you're like, ah, that's why I struggle. That's why I choke on Christianity. Let me explain why that strong language is there. Jesus used that language when you read the, the, te- the, the New Testament. Jesus said, would talk about that. He was looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, your devil's your daddy. And we're like, oh. But what's, what's this mean? My New Testament prof, Dr. Samuel Lamerson, he used to say to us, if you fall asleep in this class and I call your name to wake you up, if the first thing you say to me is, well, that depends on the historical context, sir, you're probably going to be right 85% of the time. <laughs> so the, the context... <laughs> for that language is not standing in the street and saying, you guys belong to the devil. 
He's not pointing to the political figures in Rome and going, hey, guys are children of the devil. That's not the message outside of the church, is it? What is the message? Not that. The goodness of God leads to repentance, Romans writes. Right? We're not going to shy away from judgment that's coming to the world that is in utter destruction, but we never cease to have examples of the way that humans have we failed to be our own saviors. There's a new example every week of how humanity fails to be its own savior. But that's not the message to the world. The message to the world is the grace and the beauty of Christ. So this language is to the church. In every church throughout all history, there's always a group of people who God is not their father. They're going through some sort of religious motion. They're not living. They have no desire to love Jesus. And their father's the devil. And in other words, we all have our father's eyes. We go through life with our father's perspective. What is God's perspective on life? Well, that's going to lead to practicing righteousness. And we don't need to wonder about it because when we look at the life of Jesus, there it is. And what is the devil's perspective on life? Well, we don't have to look very hard. We could just consider the ways in which uh, the world, uh, we seem to have an endless catalog of evil and ways of hurting each other. So there it is. So let's move on to the final thing as, we, as I, I close with a couple statements here. Why should we practice righteousness? Why should we do any of this? I'm going to borrow from C.S. Lewis. He said, you know, there are Christians who think that living a life of righteousness and practicing righteousness is like paying their taxes. They hope there's enough of their life left over to do what they really want to do, but they got to pay this holiness tax. You know, i got to go to church, i got to pray, i got to read the Bible, i got to meditate. Once I just pay my tax, I just hope there's enough left over to be what I really want to be up to. This is a, clearly such a disaster because if our whole attitude for, of our Christian faith is, I hope I have enough life left to build this you know, opulent life of comfort and leisure, um, that leads us into one of two places. Uh, discouragement or we're grumbling martyrs. We're either discouraged because we never feel like we're doing enough. You feel we've got to pay our holiness tax. And so we're kind of discouraged. We feel guilty all the time because we're kind of like, ah. And then you, you find someone who's living uh, like a beautiful life of mercy and love or patience or sacrifice. And instead of being like really encouraged by that, like a fellow brother or sister, instead of being encouraged by it, like a team that scores a goal and looks over at the bench and goes, let's go. And they're not doing that so that everybody on the bench goes, <laughs> I'm such a failure. Like they're wanting to like fire up the whole team. We're all together. And when Christians, when, when we just kind of got to pay our holiness tax, then when someone else in the church does a beautiful thing, we're kind of discouraged by it or we're guilty by it or we kind of get on our noses at a joint about it. Or we flip to the other side and we're, we're the people in the church who are like giving and serving and giving all of our time. And then we're like these righteousness martyrs who make everybody else feel guilty because we're like, oh. And Jesus is like, Martha, 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 you're so concerned about many things. What you're doing is fantastic, but just marvel at my feet for a while. And so this discipleship in the New Testament, it looks like when we look at Jesus and disciples, when we look at why should we practice righteousness, it's this joy. It's creating space and carving it out of our life to, to love and serve each other and to care for each other. It's, it's not paying holiness tax and hoping we have enough life left over. It's weaving the glory of God's love and mercy and justice. It's weaving it into our life, weaving it into our leisure. What are you up to? Where are you taking your kids in the city? You bring it with you, your love and your, your love and your joy of Christ and your desire to be a minister in the gospel. You bring it with you to work. You make your work environment a wonderful 
place to be precisely because you're there and you're like this bright spot of love and care and joy and justice and, and, and you bring that with you. We just, we bring it, we see it as weaving it into our lives because if we misdiagnose the problem of, of just ramping up activity, we're going to have an impotent solution of ramping up activity. But the problem, as I hope I've established, is not activity. The problem is allegiance. Who is your father? And we can't just ramp up the activity and make that right, make everything okay. Because we all know that the first rule of self-righteousness club is to make sure everybody knows we're in self-righteousness club. So we can't fix it this way. We've got to just marvel at the joy and the beauty of, of Jesus and who he is. The last thing I'll say is this, that practicing righteousness, it's not the fuel for righteousness any more than the road is powering the car. What the apostle's getting at is you fact-check this sermon by reading the whole letter, you're going to see that the, the wise guidance of God's law is fueled by the glory of the gospel. You see that right in verse 1. Behold. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. No beholding? Forget the power for behaving. Forget the ongoing power for behaving if there's no beholding. Behold. If you have young children, that's where to start. Teach them to behold. Right? I've raised three children. Well, I've raised two and the third one is on their way out the door. Come on, Nigel, you can do it. Right? Trying to get them out of here. Susan and I are going to be living the dream soon. All right, You raise these kids to love Jesus and love his ways, but it's, it's, not, it's not calling my adult children and calling them on the phone and asking them if they're behaving. Behold, behold, behold. That is the fuel, the gospel, for all manner of behaving. That is the power. You know how when you're sitting down to watch Netflix and, and the artists and the editors go through all of this work to paint this glorious picture of the narrative in the intro to that show you're watching. There's usually incredible art and cinematography. And then there's this button in the corner that says, skip the intro. And the first time you watch the show, you're like, oh man, that's so cool. Oh, that is so creative. Look at what they did. And after episode three, skip. Skip the intro, skip the intro, skip the intro. Who cares about the art? Get me to the next episode. And what the gospel calls us to do. How do you and I practice righteousness? Don't skip the intro. Marvel at the art. Marvel. Be swept away and swept up in the divine drama of the scandalous grace of Christ. And that will be the power for all manner of practicing righteousness. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Let's pray.